Let grammar, punctuation, and spelling into your life. Even the most energetic and wonderful mess has to be turned into sentences. Terry Pratchett. You're listening to Writing Roots, brought to you by Aspen House Publishing. Welcome to Writing Roots. I'm Lee Hull. And I'm Lee S's. Quick reminder, you still have a couple of days left to enter our nano contest. Get online. If you've been doing the NaNoWriMo this month, just make friends with us on the nano.org website. I am Lee Hull. She's Lee S's on there. Find us. We also have some links on our own website, so you can enter to win some sweet, sweet merch. And it's free. All you have to do is let us know you participated, and yay! We just want to celebrate that with you. Because NaNo is a wonderful accomplishment. Even if you don't get those 50,000 words, it is still a huge deal. Which, to be honest, I I don't know if I'm going to make it this year. It's going to really push it for me to make it this year. I'm about 6,000 words behind. As of this recording, I work all of the days left in the month. So yeah, it should be exciting. I'm even farther behind than you, but I've still gotten a lot more of my book written, so still an accomplishment. And that's the point. So let's get into our bonus episode, Trick of the Trade. Which is going to be all of the stuff that isn't words, but is printed in your book. We're talking punctuation, we're talking chaptering, we're talking paragraphing, all of these extra things that aren't letters that really help your book stand out and be understandable. So most programs that people use to write these days have a spell checker. It makes it easy to make sure you have words spelled right, doesn't always notice the incorrect words. Programs are still getting better at the grammar check. But there's one thing that it rarely can notice, and that is punctuation. Using punctuation well takes a fair amount of skill. We're not just talking putting periods at the end of sentences like you learned in third grade, which, yes, please put periods at the end of your sentences. But we're talking about using partial sentences in order to put weight on a particular topic. So there's one thing that I actually noticed in the edits of Toxic, I have a habit of ending a question with a period. If it is in my head spoken a certain way, where it is a question but also kind of a statement, I will end it with a period. I don't know how many of those Lee had to catch while she edited Toxic. I know there were at least four, and I caught myself doing it the other day when I was writing. For me... Learning to paragraph was a very difficult process. I could look at other books and figure out how they did it, what I like, what I don't like. But a lot of this punctuation and the white space, all of these extra pieces are invisible. You feel it. You don't necessarily see it. You don't recognize it, especially on that first read through. So we're considering this a trick of the trade because the punctuation, the white space that's left at the end of a paragraph, these kind of tricks that you can use when you're writing and formatting lead the reader in the direction you want. It manipulates the rhythm as they read. This is also especially helpful if you're trying to either highlight or obscure certain details. 
So when you're writing a scene where the red herring character is adjacent to the actual murderer and you want to make sure you're laying that groundwork of the murderer is right here, but you on the first read want the reader to be thinking, no, it's this other character. Obscuring those details to lay that groundwork happens in the middle of a paragraph. Everything about the other character that you want the reader to recognize and remember happens at the beginning and end of a paragraph. Using punctuation and white space will help drag your readers in the direction you want them to go so you can yank them back the other direction. So we're going to start small. We did cover some punctuation last November, but it wasn't nearly long enough to get into the full depth of using punctuation and how to use it properly to lead your readers along. So we're going to start with the smallest little punctuation mark and the most common, the period. So I am a big fan of the phrase, learn the rules before you break them. All rules are meant to be broken, but knowing how to break them is part of the skill of what you do. Please end all of your sentences with punctuation. This is a rule I'm fairly adamant about. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about this one. Asterisk. I do have qualms with how we use periods in relationship to quotation marks. I'm getting strange looks from my editor right now. You can probably all imagine what she's looking at me like. Most of the time, I completely agree with the rule. The rule is the period is always inside the quotation marks no matter what. If there are three signs, one says enter, one says do not enter, one says stay, and I'm putting that text in quotation marks for whatever reason, then I want to be able to put the period at the outside of the quotation marks. This is not technically accurate, but I think it's a stupid rule, so I do it that way anyway, and I just make Lee fix it for me. Yes. This is one of those where the punctuation is not malleable. You don't have the option to shift this one. If you put a punctuation mark outside of that quotation mark, a period, a question mark, whatever it is, you are going to get dinged by an editor. Just make sure everything else is right so you can make your point. (laughs) Periods most often go behind at the end of complete sentences. These are your standard punctuation marks that are going to go everywhere. But it's not just complete sentences that you have a period behind. If you have an incomplete sentence, finish it with the period unless they're getting interrupted. There are a couple of other marks you can use to declare this is the end of the sentence, where I'm mostly thinking about question marks and exclamation points. We've discussed exclamation points in the past and how to minimize using those so that they actually have emphasis. Please do not use multiple of these and stack them up for extra emphasis. This applies to all punctuation marks. An ellipsis is the three periods in a row. In academic writing, this denotes skipping something. So if you're quoting another paper but want to remove a middle bit because it's not relevant to the point you're making, you use an ellipsis to denote there's a piece missing. In fiction writing, an ellipsis is sometimes used to denote a trailing off of a sentence rather than an interrupted stop. 
But in my opinion, these should be used carefully and only three periods, unless it is at the end of a sentence at the same time, then it is four periods because you have the three ellipses denoting that the trail off and then the fourth to denote the end of the sentence. And to be clear, there is a two dot in academia as well. It's generally indicative of a date range. So the Four Years' War took place between 1521 and 1525. So the Four Years' War, parentheses, 1521.1525. That is the only time you should be using multiple of the same punctuation in the same little bit. Never, ever, ever use a question mark or an exclamation mark in multiples. That just does not happen. You may do it in text messaging to be like, what? But you do not do that on the page. Yeah. If you want to emphasize something using italics, using caps locks, using extra punctuation tends to be seen as amateur. It's very childish because it feels like you're texting. It's unprofessional. Using dialogue tags to add weight to the last word before you said she said or some sort of physical gesture something like that to break it up will allow you to emphasize certain words and change the rhythm of the scene without needing to put italics or caps locks or superfluous punctuation in there and as much as we love the intero bang it also really doesn't belong in fiction It is not common enough of a punctuation mark to be used in fiction. Yeah, I think it's good for tattoos, and that's pretty much it. Though I do like the look of an interrobang. If you don't know what an interrobang is, it is a question mark and an exclamation mark merged into one. So it's like a question mark with a line through it and then the big dot at the bottom. It's pretty cool. Look it up. It's fun. And it's used exactly like when you're texting, when you use an exclamation point and a question mark in the same spot. With all of these, caution is best. Now let's get into the kind of punctuation that is misused a whole lot. And those are dashes. Did you know there are three kinds of dashes? What? Exclamation mark, question mark. Oh no. (laughs) So the three kinds of dashes are the standard hyphen dash. There's an N dash, as in Edward Nora, and an M dash, as in Edward Mary. Your hyphens, these are the lines in between words. So you have a pickup line. When you are using phrases as an adjective in some way, That tends to be when you put a bunch of dashes between words. So the 21-year-old man went to the bar. So that's where your hyphen dash goes. N dashes are a little bit bigger than a hyphen. And those are really only used with like phone numbers or in academic writing. There's really no use of an N dash in fiction writing. My favorite is, of course, the M dash. M dashes are the really long ones. These go at the end of a word that's been interrupted. These go in between phrases if you have that interjection phrase. 
and there's no spaces in between. It's just the dash and it goes right into the next phrase, but it is long. And most computers don't automatically format this way. In Google Docs, I set up a special character so that if I hit my hyphen twice and then space, it'll automatically revert to an M dash. So we've now talked about two different kinds of ways of replacing words with punctuation. Either you can do it with the ellipsis. If somebody is trailing off, you're sort of replacing words or academically replacing words with the ellipsis. If somebody's interrupted, you just go dash. Another way to replace characters and replace letters is the apostrophe. Mostly when you're doing contractions, you're smashing a couple of words together. Where the letters disappear, that tends to be where the apostrophe is. So if I'm saying y'all, it's not Y-A apostrophe L-L. It's a smash together of you all, the O-U and you. That's the part that was taken out. That's where your apostrophe is going to go instead. Apostrophes are also used to show possession, asterisk. When you have a noun and you are saying, that is Sarah's guitar, there is an apostrophe there. If it's a pronoun, then no, there's no apostrophe. So that's talking about his, hers, its. If a name could be put there but isn't in this particular case, then there aren't apostrophes in that realm. Because you would say it, that's her guitar, or that guitar is hers, and there's no apostrophe in that sentence. But if we're saying that guitar is Sarah's, then there's an apostrophe. We have the name, we have the noun, not just the pronoun. Now, the one word that throws most people off is it's. We were talking about having at our launch party a pin the tail on the donkey style game where people spin around and try to pin the apostrophe on the it's. It's is one of the exceptions here. Because you can have it's as in it is, or it's as in that is its tail, the only time you use an apostrophe in the word it's is if it is that contraction, if you are using it in place of the I in is. It's possessive is not apostrophied. <laughs> we're not sure that that's a word, but you get what we're meaning here. Of course, if I'm going to see repeated errors in anyone's work, they're often going to be these apostrophes. Or they're going to be, you guessed it, misplaced commas. It's like the subtext apostrophe. If you aren't sure if a comma belongs here, don't put one in there. More often than not, I see one in the middle of a breath, in the middle of a phrase. So this is one thing that I struggled with when I was first learning how to write creatively. Because I was always taught that commas go when you pause... If my brain paused on a phrase, I would put a comma. I had commas everywhere. And I had a teacher once tell me in almost these words that I was a comma whore. Oh, jeez. Oh, <laughs> because I used them everywhere. I still use a lot of commas, but I've gotten a lot better about making sure they're in the right places. That's one of those things that as I have grown as an author, I use fewer and fewer commas. 
because especially in my particular writing style, short sentences are your friend, cleaning things up and then using those long sentences with intention, with strategy. Skipping those commas, or if I feel like I have too many commas in a sentence, I will often break it up into two different sentences that don't need commas to avoid commas because they will slow you down. And despite what you are told in elementary school, you do not need a comma before every conjunction word. You don't need a comma before and, but, because. They work sometimes, but a lot of the time you don't need them. Yeah, the rule that we're actually addressing here is the introductory clause or lists. We'll talk about lists in a moment because we have the serial or the Oxford comma that is a huge ongoing debate. But if you have an introductory clause, like, if I'm feeling like it later, comma, I will have M&Ms for dinner. That's your introductory clause. That's an if-then statement is what that is. You'll have a comma in between those two. You don't always need to have a comma if there's an and in there. One other place that I see commas misused a lot are in interjections. Yes, commas can go in interjections, but anymore in fiction writing, a lot of the times you will want to use your M dashes. The Victorian era absolutely loved interjection commas. Yeah, they would have sentences inside of sentences inside of sentences. I'm not sure their readers breathed because that's one of the things that you wield, especially your punctuation around, is breathing. Your readers will breathe when you put a period or a comma in there. They'll take a deeper breath on a period. If you look at Sir Arthur Conan Doyle or Charles Dickens is pre-Victorian, but if you look at these period writers, they have a bajillion commas in there. Because they can, effectively. So use your interjection commas sparsely. Your shorter sentences are better. Your readers can follow them more. So you can have a max of one interjection in a sentence. Think really carefully whether it needs to be a comma or an M dash. M dashes tend to be a separated thought, kind of a tangent thought. A comma is in that same flow, but slightly different interjection thought. And to be frank, I'll use these fairly interchangeably, depending on how many commas I have in between the beginning and end of the interjection. So if I'm having a list in the middle of the interjection, I'll definitely use dashes on the sides because that separates it a little bit more than just the commas would. Because I use a lot of dashes, I base it on whether or not I've had a dash recently. (laughs) Okay, that's fair. I do that in the editing a fair amount. So let's move on to the next use of comma that is rather controversial. I almost wanted this to be a versus episode, but I think we both fall on the same side. Oxford comma, Oxford comma. So what is an Oxford comma? These are your commas at the end of, say, a list where you'll have a comma and last item. A classic example of this is when the first thing could include the second and third thing. So I went to the party with the strippers, JFK and Einstein. 
if you don't have that comma in there between JFK and Einstein, then it looks like JFK and Einstein are the strippers. If you do have it, then they're three different groups of people. There's one of my favorite examples is actually tweeted out by Neil Gaiman. And it's a quote saying, Good Omens was co-written almost 30 years ago by Sir Terry, comma, who died in 2015 after a public struggle with Alzheimer's, comma, and Neil Gaiman. And his tweet said, I was grateful for the comma, because without that comma, it would suggest that Sir Terry died after a public struggle with Alzheimer and Neil Gaiman. <laughs> Which, if you read the book, that almost makes sense. I think technically that's an interjection comma, but it represents the point still the same with the Oxford comma. Without that comma, it changes the meaning of what's said. You'll also hear this referred to as a serial comma. The first time I heard someone say that this particular person reads a lot of uh, engineering manuals, so I'm guessing that's where he picked that up from. But it's basically the comma before the last item in a list and if misplaced, can be very confusing. But the other side of the argument is minimizing the amount of punctuation makes people read stuff faster. So I just read another tweet from Neil Gaiman. I stand with my parents, comma, Charles Darwin, comma, and God. Without that Oxford comma, his parents were Charles Darwin and God. <laughs> so there is another place for commas. If you are preceding a quotation with a phrase, so saying something like, she threw her hands in the air and said, comma, space, quotation mark, and then her sentence. I do want to point out she said phrase, not sentence. If that first chunk is a standing sentence on its own, then it's a period, space, quotation mark. So she threw her hands into the air period, space, quotation mark, such and such. That in and of itself is its own sentence. And that, in this case, will replace a dialogue tag because you don't need to say and said. But if you said she said, comma, space, quote, chocolate chip is the best cookie ever, then you need to have that comma in there because you're connecting what should be a sentence and a half a sentence. And honestly, when in doubt, just take it out. You're going to annoy far fewer people if you have no commas versus if you have a bajillion extra commas. Your editor will be much happier to be adding commas than to be taking them out. It's easier to add them into places we know they belong than take them out of places that are just unnecessary. I would rather add in fewer commas than take out a trillion of them. One quick thing, I know we didn't talk about quotation marks outside of in relation to other punctuation, but one thing that you should never, ever, 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 ever do is use a quotation mark as emphasis. Quotation marks do not denote emphasis. If I see a sign that says, sign this petition and it's in quotation marks, I suddenly doubt whether or not it is a petition that I am signing. Yeah. Anytime you're using italics or quotation marks, same rule. Leave it out if you have any questions about it. 
because you're going to annoy far more people than you are going to convince with these tools. So there are great uses for all these bits of punctuation that we've talked about. You're conveying information without words. You're changing how your reader is breathing and how they're feeling with these commas and periods and question marks. And you're changing the inflection of the characters that are speaking. There's a lot that you can do with this particular style of punctuation. I did want to cover a couple more. Most of you, our audience, are fiction authors. So these aren't necessarily going to apply to you, but I didn't want to leave them out. There are some punctuation marks that you'll pretty much only see in academic writing, occasionally self-help instructional kind of books. Top in these lists are the semicolon, the colon, and the parentheses. You will occasionally see these in fiction, but they are very rare and usually would be better off with other kinds of punctuation marks. Yeah, more often than not, you are pulling away from this story and distracting from the story by using weird kinds of punctuation. So you're better off, in the case of parentheses, using those dashes, using those commas. In the case of a colon or a semicolon, use a period. If you're going for a strictly academic style, then you want to use a semicolon and be fancy about it. Make sure you look up how to use it, because if you do it wrong, it's a mess. It can be very disastrous. You will also see the comma used in place of the word and in a lot of academic writing, especially in journalistic writing. Headlines specifically are designed to pull out as many words as possible while still conveying the same idea. They get rid of a lot of your conjunction words, a lot of unnecessary filler words, and use commas instead. If you've ever studied another language you kind of get why this exists because we have a lot of words that are completely unnecessary in the language. You're not conveying any new information with the word of. It's just kind of in there. So in the case of a lot of headlines, a lot of lower third graphics on the news, those kind of things, you're going to see a comma instead of the word and because you have fewer characters and therefore you're spending less ink in the case of a newspaper. And the one that we've been occasionally mentioning, but not explaining, is the asterisk. I mostly see this on nutrition facts labels. What it means is look somewhere else for an explanation of this word. So this bag of chips has four cookies in it. Four has the little asterisk next to it, and then you sort of scan on the other side. Technically, it has four servings worth, but there are only two cookies or whatever it is. The asterisk is an indicator to look somewhere else for further explanation that we don't want to put in this particular location. Explanation, clarification, that kind of stuff. Some kind of conditional marking where we said that apostrophes show possession, asterisk, there's that conditional piece to it where it's sometimes they show possession, other times they don't. Asterisks differ from footnotes mostly in what you're conveying more than how they're used necessarily. Footnotes are often for citing sources. If you scroll any Wikipedia article, they'll have little footnotes and you can click on the number one and it'll say as according to Lies's book on astrophysiology among aliens, whatever. It'll often be a citing the source. 
So you can reinforce that point more than an addition to further explain that particular thing. If you've ever looked at a Wikipedia article, you'll see footnotes all the time. It's that little number that's up above the word, and then you can click on it and it'll take you to the source. That is a footnote. I am in my current work in progress. I'm writing it in an academic style. So the author is kind of a character. He's the researcher 500 years later who is putting all this information together of these fantastic events. So there's a fair amount of footnotes throughout the entire thing. The sources I had differed here on the translation of this word and blah, blah, blah. It is in there strictly to have it feel like an academic paper and not necessarily to actually add to the storytelling at all. So we mentioned it briefly at the beginning. We're going to move on from punctuation to another piece of the formatting and writing process that leads your readers, that directs them where you want to go just by how the page is laid out. This is in your paragraphing and the white space. This is one of the most invisible tools you have as an author. Using and figuring out which words begin and end a paragraph, begin and end a chapter, begin and end your book. If you're a fan of magic tricks and studying how the brain understands something, this is going to be one of your favorite tools because you're playing with the human mind by paragraphing and punctuating in certain ways. By adding that white space after the word over, we get a sense of weight attached to that word. So when we say white space, we mean those gaps at the end of a line because that's where the paragraph ended. A lot of good action sequences will have this. They'll have a lot of white space because this happened and then that triggered this event, which triggered this event, which triggered this event. And it is a rapid fire line after line after line that's only taking up maybe half the page. And that really draws your reader to that and reading it quickly, getting the action, the movement that you're wanting with that little bit. You'll also see this with rapid fire dialogue. Person standing at a podium and audience members are shouting out their favorite kind of pancakes, peanut butter, banana, da-da-da. You see all of this happening almost on top of each other, and it moves the dialogue very quickly. So if we are arguing, we each get two, three words, and then next line, next line, next line. It's a very fast-moving argument versus a philosophical debate, which will be paragraphs at a time. So during your editing process, I assume if you're listening to this episode at a time which it didn't air, You're probably in your editing phase right now. I want you to pay special attention to the first word of every paragraph and the last word of every paragraph. Are these the words that you want to stick in your readers' minds? When people read, the beginning and the end of things stick out to them, but they skim the middle. So if you really want a powerful paragraph, a powerful sentence, really pay attention to the beginning and the end. Make sure that it's something that will impact your readers in the way that you want. Like the example Lee used, where you have over, 
and then there's white space. So if you're having a character go on a rant and breaking up with somebody and they end it with, it's over, that has a very final feel to it. And it has that weight and impact that's needed if you give it that space and if that is the end of that paragraph. Catherine shook her head, eyes wide, before answering. It's impossible. If I had put the phrase, it's impossible, at the beginning of the paragraph instead of the end, the first word is it, and then the last word is answering, neither of which are very interesting words. Catherine and impossible are much stronger words for the beginning and end of that particular paragraph. So aside from that, you don't want to just paragraph based on the feel. That's something you want to look for in edits. But as you're writing, there are actually times to have a new paragraph, regardless of the impact. Generally, the rule of thumb is if something is responding to something else. This happens dialogue. I am responding to you. New person talking, new paragraph. If I am answering you without words, you say I smell funny, I throw a fist. I am still responding to you, just not verbally. So if there's new dialogue from a different character, if the subject of the moment has changed, those are different paragraphs. So in my book, if I'm talking about Thea's internal struggle and then she starts to notice Logan's facial expressions, that's a new paragraph because she went from herself being the subject to Logan being the subject. But generally, if you have a character sitting there staring out at the city, contemplating life, he's even responding to himself. But what about this? One of my favorite ways to start a paragraph in that particular style is with the word but. I've noticed. It's a great way to prove that you're answering and not just continuing the paragraph. You will also sometimes hit enter twice in order to create what's called a scene break. So it's not necessarily the beginning of a new chapter with a new number and all of that, but the definition of a change in scene is either a change in location or a change in time. Scene breaks are different from paragraph breaks. When you're doing a standard paragraph break, do not hit enter more than once. There are a few minor exceptions. In my current work in progress, I have letters written by the bad guy sent to my main character. And because I am also indenting them because it's a few paragraphs worth of letter, I am doing that double enter break there. But when it comes to a normal paragraph break, it is one single enter and that is it. A scene break is two enters. You get that extra space. And this is something you're going to need to pay attention to in the formatting process. Not all formatting programs recognize double enters as scene breaks because this is a common mistake in new writers that they'll hit enter twice for a simple paragraph. So they will remove all of that. The first formatting program I used for Toxic did not recognize scene breaks. It removed all my double enters. So when I sent it to a couple of my beta readers in PDF format, they got really confused because all of a sudden 
the scene had changed, the location had changed, the time had changed, and they didn't pick up on that because the formatting did not work with it. Another time you're going to use this scene break is not only if you're changing locations, if you're changing time, so it's morning than evening, but you'll also use it if you're changing a character's point of view. People say head hopping is a bad plan, and yes, it is, but having multiple points of views is not head hopping. The difference is your scene break here. You're clearly changing a point of view in the middle of the scene. In one scene, you should only be seeing from one character's point of view. You don't have to change location or time to switch to a different character point of view, but you do need that scene break still. This is a clear flag to your readers going, we're changing something. There's an extra space here intentionally. So the last thing we want to mention is chaptering a book. How to chapter. Because this is a struggle. When it comes to chaptering, you don't necessarily have to do it at scene breaks. You always want to have something at the end of the chapter that leads the reader to continuing. Think about a lot of your favorite books. They leave you with this, oh, just one more chapter feeling. I tend to have very few chapters in my books. Most of my chapters are fairly large because I don't want to give the reader an excuse to put the book down. So at the end of all of my chapters, I try to make sure there's enough of a question mark for them to just read the next chapter. It is considered a huge mark of honor to me if my readers finish the book in a day and a half. A good time to include a chapter break is if you have a really powerful line that leads directly into the next segment. When my character walked in on a friend laying on the ground looking like they were dead, I did a chapter break as soon as she opened the door and saw the body. Because it ends that very powerful moment, but the reader goes, oh my goodness, I need to read more. I need to keep going. Because that's the problem with chapter breaks. It gives the reader an excuse to put down the book. You don't want to give them more of an excuse by saying, oh, that was a good resolution for the moment. I can put this book aside and be done because it's the chapter break. Another thing that I see happen with chapter breaks, especially in young adult, is changing point of views only on the chapter break. I don't do that. I don't like it. It's a little too rigid and structural for my style, but you're going to see a lot of, especially young adult, where this chapter is named the character whose point of view you're reading the chapter from. Middle grade in YA is really common for this because your younger readers are still getting used to how scene breaks work, how general flow of books work, because they're just getting into reading full-sized novels. One really good example of this is the Percy Jackson series and the other books written by Rick Riordan. All of his character point of view changes are chapter breaks that are titled with that character. So it specifically denotes who that person is. If you're writing for adults, adults have been usually reading long enough to pick up on that easily enough. You don't need scene breaks or chapter breaks with a title for who you're writing the point of view from. 
Generally, if you feel like there's a question mark, your editor or a beta reader says, I didn't know whose point of view this was until this moment, the first name that you show in the scene should be the point of view character's name. That's generally a good, easy indicator to get your readers on the same track that you want them on. So, Lee, how do you chapter books? As rarely as possible. I have several books in my arsenal that have not yet been edited and have just sort of been fed to my alpha readers because they like reading that don't have any chapters at all. I am 50,000 words into my current work in progress and I have a chapter one indicated to separate from the prologue, but that's it. I'll write the entire manuscript, I'll type up the entire manuscript, I'll go through my three phases of editing, and then I'll chapter. Because by then, I know the book well enough and I know the pacing well enough to know when things should be broken up. But I tend to do every five to 6,000 words. If you ask people on a worldwide forum, they will say every 2,000 words or so. Generally, except is 2,000 to 5,000. It's a little thin for me because, again, every chapter break you make is an opportunity for your reader to put the book down. So I make my chapters as long as possible and sometimes the entire book long. So how do you chapter your books? When I first started writing, I would chapter as I wrote. But I found I had a really strong tendency to chapter at scene breaks because it was convenient. Like, okay, well, that's resolved. I can move on to a new chapter. It didn't end up with the reader wanting to continue past the chapter breaks because everything was resolved in a nice little neat bow for that scene. What I did for Toxic and what I'm doing now for its sequel is scene breaks. Just so I could easily find where I am in the Google Doc, I label every scene break with the number. So I have right now in KD ratio, scene one through scene 30. Every scene break, I put a label, a headline there. And then in my first edit, I will make notes for this would be a really good chapter break. This would be a good chapter break. This would be a good chapter break. And then start working from there, removing the scene headlines and adding chapter headlines. Sometimes it's pretty obvious where your chapter break is going to be. I just wrote a spot that I know I'm going to put a chapter there because like four months pass. So I'm almost okay with the reader experiencing a little bit of an exhale, taking a nap, using the restroom, whatever the case may be, taking a break because the characters are more or less taking a break from the momentum. So the characters all agree No more secrets between them. The point of view character is like, well, good, everyone else is sharing theirs, but I'm not going to share mine. Scene break. Okay, well, now you want to know what happens next. But the next scene opens weeks past. They went separate ways. They did things. They came back and forth. So that exhale is an intentional moment for me. Therefore, it's okay for them to close the book for a moment there. And that is okay sometimes. You don't always want to push your reader forward over and over and over again. You need to give them a little breathing room, a little bit of time to go, 
okay, things are okay right now, especially if you have a highly emotional book. So next time you're reading a book that you really enjoy and you wonder why this line mattered so much to you, why these words make so much sense. If I just texted Lee, this sentence is awesome, out of context, it wouldn't make any sense. But if you're asking yourself, why do I love this so much? Take a look at the paragraphing because that's a huge part and an invisible part of how you manipulate your audience. If you want to learn how to use punctuation, paragraphing, chapter breaks, scene breaks, you have to read. You have to not just read for fun, but read your favorite stories with an analytical mind. Break down what they're doing that makes you love that book so much. And then apply it to your own writing. Use what you learn by reading professional authors. And then go out and write selfishly. If you have a question or comment for our hosts or a topic you'd like us to cover, send us an email at writingroots at aspenhousepublishing.com or find us on Facebook by searching for Aspen House Publishing. <laughs>